Father, we give you thanks for another Sunday morning to come together to celebrate what you've done all week in us and through us. Father, I, I echo what uh, Chris was praying before. As I prayed earlier with our prayer time at uh, 9.15 this morning, God, there are so many people who love you who are so persecuted and oppressed simply because they love Jesus. To be arrested or killed all because they love Jesus. God, I pray for your, I pray for your joy in the midst of their pain. God, I thank you. I guess I hear stories, God, of those who deal with persecution to where they know that, God, you are enabling them and empowering them. God, their view of you is so deep, so much deeper than mine is. And I thank you for their faith. And I pray, God, that you would empower them and embolden them to continue to live the life of faith and to make the impact for the gospel. God, we pray for their oppressors that you would bring them to a place of humility and repentance that they would come to Christ. And now, God, as we open your word, we pray that you would lead us in this time, that you would keep our opinions and our agendas to ourselves, that we would find conviction, encouragement, peace, and rest in what it is that you share with us today. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you meet us where we are individually. God, I pray that you'd help us to be attentive to what it is that you're trying to tell us. God, we pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone who agrees says, amen, amen. Hey, two weeks ago, we looked at something that uh, Ruth had said uh, to Naomi. So if you don't know the story, uh, Naomi is married um, and has a couple boys, and they go off to Moab because in their town, Bethlehem, uh, there's this famine, so they go to Moab thinking that they can find food there. And while there... uh, her husband dies, so Naomi's husband dies. And some time goes by, and then her sons, they both marry women from Moab. Which, when you look in the Old Testament, this was something that God said, I do not want you to do this. Now, again, we can look at that passage, and I cannot tell you how many commentators or people that I'd heard, heard or read just kind of blasting Naomi for this. Like blasting the whole family. Why don't you trust God? And guys, there's nothing in the passage that says, hey, these bad things happened because you were disobedient. It doesn't even say it. And so I don't want to jump to conclusions. If it doesn't say it, let's just pull back the judgment for just a second and come back to the place that even if they did make the mistake and they didn't hear the direction and leading of God, at least let's listen to the fact that they're hurting. Like let's jump into the pain that Naomi's experiencing as she lost her husband and now has these two sons to raise by herself. And then there's this bit of joy that happens and because the two sons, they get married and okay, so she's got these daughters-in-law and now there's gonna be grandkids coming, right? And maybe it was even at the weddings, like, so when are babies coming? Because she's ready for grandkids because no mom would ever do that today, but only back in the day. And so she's thinking this is what's gonna happen. And then all of a sudden, both of her sons die before grandkids come. And now she's left with just two daughters-in-law. And don't you think that at some point this follower of Yahweh would begin to look at God and say, where are you? 
Again, we could jump into judgment and we could, as I'm reading the commentaries, it's like, well, you left Bethlehem. That's where God's providence and protection was. And it's true. There's something about being where God wants you to be. That's true. But notice there's also a famine in that land, so you can't over-spiritualize things. Fathers of Jesus, I think many times we need to jump into people's pain before we jump into judgment of whether or not their theology is perfect. Or whether they have a relationship with Christ, we jump into their pain. Those who don't know Christ, we jump into their lives. Why? So that they could come to Christ because followers of Jesus were actually on a rescue mission to go introduce people to Jesus that they could be freed from sin and brought into relationship and freedom in Christ. So we don't jump to say, okay, where are you morally or where are you politically? Well, don't go there yet because Tuesday's coming. But don't, we don't jump into that first. We actually jump into their human They're created in the image of God, and therefore I want to jump into your life and see what's going on with you. And so Naomi tells the daughters-in-law, why don't you just go home? Like, go home. Like, don't wait for me. I'm not going to have any more sons. I want them not married. Even if I got married tomorrow and had babies, are you really going to wait for them to grow up so you can marry them? So just go home. One daughter-in-law, well, they both say no. Then all of a sudden, one goes back. But then there's Ruth, and she said this. In verse 16, chapter one, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when we looked at that passage, we looked at that statement that she made to her mother-in-law, I said, doesn't this, sound what, doesn't this sound like what every follower of Jesus is actually supposed to say to Jesus? Like, isn't it supposed to be this type of commitment as disciples of Christ, not just simply, hey, I went to something, I raised a hand, I said some words, and now I can live however I want. But rather we hear the call of Jesus and he says, follow me, follow me. Follow me, go make disciples, but follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I'll give you a purpose, but I want you to come with me. So when I hear this part, I think, okay, shouldn't I be saying the same thing to Jesus? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. God, I'm all in. Guys, I think she gives the perfect statement of what a follower of Jesus is supposed to look like. See, when Jesus called the first disciples, they dropped everything to follow after him. He walked up to Simon and Andrew right after they'd finished fishing. This is their job. This is their trade. And he says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They dropped their nets, which was their livelihood, and they went after Jesus. Then he goes on to the next ones. There's James and John. He says, hey, follow me. He says they left their nets, their boats, and daddy in the boat. Like, dads, this is his business. They get to take over. In fact, he he even had servants, and so this is a pretty profitable, lucrative business that he's created. And they leave it all because they say what? Jesus is worth it. But do you ever think that those early disciples ever started doubting their decision to follow Jesus when they started to follow him? Like in the moment, you know, you got that excitement. It's like, I'm all in, I'm all in. And then maybe, you ever have that thing? You ever have buyer's remorse? Anybody ever ever do that? You ever bought the car? You're like, I've been saving. I know this is financial. Like financially, I'm fine, healthy. And then you buy it. And then at night, you're, you're in bed going, what did I do? 
what, then, then the what ifs happen, right? Like what if all the food goes away everywhere? What if I can't afford food because I have this car? Why did I do this? What if gas prices go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not getting into that. Like, what if I can't fill it? What if I can't drive? What if I, I can't fix it? Like, what if, what if? It's like buyer's remorse. Do you ever wonder if maybe the disciples sat there and was like, what did we just do? You ever think of Simon Peter? He had to go back to his wife. He's the only one of the disciples that was married. Didn't ask, didn't go home. Hey, can I talk to my wife real quick? This is kind of a big decision. I'm not gonna work. I'm just gonna hang out with a bunch of bearded men. For however long, we're just gonna hang out and talk about God. Hey, babe, this is what we're gonna do. Hang with a bunch of guys for, for however. Hey, God bless, see you later, and take off. Maybe she, they should have that conversation. Do you ever wonder if they had buyer's remorse and have you? Have you ever had buyer's remorse when it came to, hey, when I surrendered to Jesus, he was worth it. But is he still? Is it deeper now, your love for him deeper, or is it just simply, well, I'm a Christian? And yet if I was to ask, what do you mean by that? Could you even explain what that meant? See, at the end of chapter one of Ruth, there's this, there's this, this little glimmer of hope, this glimmer of light, where everything that's happened to Naomi and the two, and the two daughters-in-law, all that stuff that's happened, all their loss, the last verse in chapter one says this, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You're like, how is that hope? Because they're going back to a place that was in famine, but now has a harvest. It's almost like, okay, so they're going back to Bethlehem, that's gonna be pretty good. Oh, and there's a harvest, that's good, so there's hope. I can go toward hope. Guys, this isn't in the notes, I'm so sorry, but it just popped in my head. It's from our reading plan uh, for this week. In Romans chapter five, by a show of hands, how many sit there and go, I just, I, I love and I just want hope. Just hope. How many sit there and go, man, hope has been so helpful in the past. So the rest of you is like, I don't like hope. I just like living in hopelessness. It's fantastic. It makes me feel like, oh, it makes me want Jesus even more. So, okay, maybe you see it differently. Okay, but I was like, okay, so God, you want us to live in this hope. There should be this hope. But what does God use in our lives to bring it about? And we just sit there and go, well, you'll just have that feeling of hope. You'll be walking along and bam, I've got hope. I mean, nothing good or bad is just happening. Just walking along, boom, I just got more hope. But in Romans chapter five, this hit, I don't know that I've ever put these together except for when I was just sitting there in, in my time reading the word this week. In, in verse three of chapter five, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Look at, the, look at how it goes. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I don't even know what that is. I was just trying to pretend like I'm a robot. <laughs> Man, you didn't know your pastor had moves, but I do. So <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. You have, you have a suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character, character, hope. The beginning of hope is what? Suffering. I might need this. I might need this one. Hello? I'm not going to beatbox because I always do. But here's the thing. Okay, you start with, 
You start with suffering. We don't like suffering. We just want hope. We just want it to all feel good, right? So I get hope. So God will give me hope. But here's the thing. It starts with suffering. And God does his work through suffering to produce in us endurance. And that endurance that comes from suffering produces character. And that character that started with suffering produces hope. So think about it. As we've been praying for the persecuted church, do you think that God has given them hope through their suffering? Absolutely. And when we hit times of suffering, do we sit and go, God, you're, you're screwing up. You're missing the point. Or we sit there and go, God, you're doing a greater work in me right now because I know that what I'm going through is producing in me endurance, which will which produce in me character, which will bring about hope. Guys, that is mind-blowing and perspective-changing. When we start grasping that God is sovereign over every single thing that happens, that at no point has God ever said, oops, or oops, I'm sorry, I'll get to that. I didn't mean it. God knows what he's doing in his sovereign plan. And even in the pain, whether we want to say he allows it or he brings it, God is producing a greater work in us than he ever would have had he not brought that suffering. Guys, he is that good at what he does. I read in that last verse, there's this glimmer of hope. But the hope came because of the suffering that they had to endure. So we jump into verse, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. That, word, that phrase, worthy man, it, it means this in the Hebrew, powerful, champion, chief, giant man. That's fantastic. Valiant man. Different translations say it this way. The Christian Standard Bible says prominent man. New American Standard, a man of great wealth. The New, New International Version, a man of standing. The New Living Translation, a wealthy and influential man. It made me think of the husband who's mentioned in Proverbs 31, that, that chapter that talks about a godly wife and a godly mom. And a lot of maybe moms or wives, you kind of look at that passage going, I could never, I could never be all of that. Guys, I don't think it's like in one moment. It's not like, oh, I, I can't do all that now. And maybe God's sitting there going, I didn't expect you to be all that now. But what if at the end of his work, the characteristics that are of that woman, he's like, I'm, this is the work I'm going to do. And you give yourself, some, give yourself some slack. God is doing a great work in you. And in that passage, talking about this godly woman, it's like there's one verse for the husband. And it says this in verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So when you look at Boaz, he's not just this dude that's just there. He could kind of help if he wanted to. No, he's prominent in the community. Everyone knows Boaz. He's worthy. He's influential, friends. And this is what she says. Ruth has this plan. It says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Well, what does she mean by glean among the ears of grain after him? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, guys, I want you to understand, God is the one who set up helping. He's the one who set up those who are in need, they need to be helped. 
Listen to what God says in the Old Testament. I know that for some people go, Old Testament, that's mean and nasty, ogre God. No, this is God still being God. And in the Old Testament, you'll see God saying, I'm gonna set up something. It's almost like this, it's, it's this system of welfare to help those who are in need. But it's not just gonna be this miraculous supply where God throws it from heaven. He actually, it's, all, it's like this. He's gonna ask those who have to sacrifice for those who, da- who, for those who don't. Look what he says. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I will command you to do this. So it's kind of like this. As they're, as they're reaping what it is that they've been growing, it's almost like as you, it's like go through it once and then leave the rest for those who don't have anything to come behind and to work to gather. That's from the scriptures. That's what God set up to care for the people. So that those who have extra, don't go back and just get more because you want more. Just pass by it once. Get what you have and then leave the rest. It's almost like leave some stuff out so that those who don't have anything can come behind and work to gather that they can live. Guys, this was a command of God for his people. So then we pick up in verse verse three. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She just happened to. I love that. I mean, we just say, oh, what a coincidence. This is a love story. This is a love story in the making because of the coincidence. Guys, it's not like it is today where it's kind of like you kind of know whose property is who because there's fences and then there's roads that separate properties. And this is kind of like, just picture this massive field and maybe over here, all of a sudden you'll see this rock and that represents, hey, that's, that's Jojo's spot. So he gets, that's all his. And the next one, there's a rock or there's something set up to kind of say, hey, this is their spot. And then it gets to Boaz and this is his spot. And she just happened to show up to that one. Verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And that word blessing, it means this. It's a statement of goodwill and happiness spoken to and over, over people. Guys, I think we need to get back in the habit of doing that. I mean, I'll say it just as a quick thing, but am I really thinking about what I'm saying? I mean, even as people were going by and getting a s'more on Monday and they're getting, and dropping candy in their bags, I try to overspoil the kids. I'm like, oh, there you go, bam. And they just, as much as I can, because I want the kids to like me. So I'm, just, so I'm just throwing stuff in. But there's, there's times I'd sit there and go, hey, God bless you. God bless you. See that open the conversation. Hey, God bless you. But am I really thinking through what I'm saying? I want God's best on you. Like, I want you to experience the best and the goodness of God. When I say God bless you, do I get what I'm saying or is it just a statement that goes out like when we sneeze? Guys, there's something to this and think about it. He goes out and tells those who are working for him. He blesses them and did you notice what they did in response? They blessed him back. What that shows to me is I think he's a good boss. They liked him. They're blessing him as he's blessing them. 
See, there's a few things that stood out to me about Boaz. I know it's a, it's a book about Ruth, but there's things that stood out about Boaz. And I'm going to go through these. Number one, the first one is this. Notice that Boaz is the one who noticed Ruth. He noticed her. Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, verse five, whose young woman is this? And the servant uh, who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Out of all the workers that were there, he took notice of her. He says, hey, who is she? And maybe you sit there going, oh, I know I asked. He's like, who's that one? I don't know her. All of a sudden he's taken notice or whatever, whatever the reason, but he takes notice of her among everyone else that's there. But notice how the, the person who's in charge of the reapers uh, how he described her. Not by name. Just says, oh, that's the young Moabite woman. It's like, you know those people we're not supposed to hang with? That's who it is. Now, it could have been derogatory, or maybe he's just sitting there going, I don't know her name. I just know she's from Moab. So she's that young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. It, couldn't, it might just be informational. But notice that Boaz is the one who took notice of Ruth. Second, Boaz spoke to Ruth. He initiates the conversation. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. That is the most awkward greeting. I don't know that I can walk up to someone, like a a woman and go, hello, daughter. If I walked up to Gilda, I don't know that I'd say, hello, mother, because you're a little older than I am. Hello, mom. Because I think my mom would be ticked. And so I don't go up to like younger, younger girls and go, hello, daughter. So what is this? Especially when you kind of know the story. Guys, we got to remember, that's a different culture and a different time. They're not the same age. In fact, I think it's later on in chapter three, it kind of looks like Boaz is about the same age as Naomi, which then kind of makes you kind of go, that's just weird. You cradle robber, like what the heck are you doing? But again, it's a totally different time. Like don't put 21st century America into the reading of scripture. In fact, you realize, like we always take a picture of Joseph and Mary, they had to have been the exact same age. I think most scholars agree that he was much older than her and that's why he died off much earlier than she did. So remember, this is a different culture, different time, instead of judging what it is that we're used to, pull back, but realize that he speaks to her. Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Which led to this, the third thing that he did. Boaz protected Ruth. Boaz protected Ruth. Look at verse nine again. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So there's this protection that he offers to her. The next one, Boaz provided for Ruth. The second part of verse nine. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he's providing for her. And then notice Ruth's response in verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? That's a strong reaction, isn't it? And where did it come from? I think it's because this, when you go back to verse 2, look what happens. Ruth went out to glean among the ears of grain after him in whose eyes, I'm sorry, in whose sight I shall find favor. That was her prayer. Like in the beginning, I pray. I pray that I would go out and I would find favor. And all of a sudden, here comes out of the blue, 
Just picture she's working all day, working all day, and then the guy that owns the fields comes walking up and is showing favor to you. You just asked for that in the beginning, and it came about. Guys, do we even, are we even aware when God steps in and does this kind of stuff? Like, I, okay, this might be a really dumb example, but I don't know, I'm having a lot of fun in my faith lately. And so uh, uh, Dylan's at home, he's got a fever, he's got that flu going around. It's not COVID, don't worry about it, but it's like he's got the flu going around. And so it's just been me and him, Kelly's up visiting her, visiting her parents and taking care of her mom. And so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking care, of, I'm holding down the fort. <laughs> what the heck does that mean? Like, what is, what's the laughter? I will have you know I'm killing it. Of course, I, asked, I had to ask her this morning, so what should I give him? Because his fever hasn't gone down. So I, okay, anyway. So she tells me, she goes, okay, uh, uh, like NyQuil, severe cold and flu. She said, but the last time I went to CVS, it wasn't there. Like there's, uh, there's been a shortage. And I was like, you know what? I'm going in faith because it's God's day. And so I'm like, I'm going. And I was like, I'm, I'm gonna find him. I had no clue, so I show up. And I'm, first I'm like, I don't understand how CBS sets things up. It used to just be rows that made sense. Now it's like rows and diagonal, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in England trying to get around Big Ben in Parliament. Like, I don't understand this. So I finally find it, and there's one left. And I went, God's day. Because God knew I needed the help, because I don't know what I'm doing. So I, I got it, and I was like, I texted it, I took a picture of it, because that's what everyone does. And I sent it to her, I was like, God's day. And her response, three smiley faces, kind of like, good job. <laughs> but I just felt so victorious. I'm like, God, you just provided for me. NyQuil or DayQuil. I didn't, I didn't like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't knock my kid out during the day. So DayQuil, severe cold and flu. God, you provided. Thank you. You said, I go, oh, Brian, that's just a coincidence. And is that why maybe you don't see the answers of God to your prayer more often because you always give credit to the coincidence? What if we just sat there and said, God, would you show favor today? That God, would you show favor today? And she noticed it to where when she gets to verse 10, she hits the floor with her face to the ground. It's not like it's all clean. This is the fields on the floor showing honor to Boaz because she's found favor. And then notice the next thing that Boaz did. Boaz knew Ruth in verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. He knew her. He knew the story. He knew her more than just the young Moabite woman who came with Naomi, but knew even more of the story about her. And the next thing that Boaz did is he blessed her. Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Man, that's a beautiful blessing. And then you watch her response. Watch what she does again. Then she said, I have found favor. There's that phrase again. Before she goes out, she asks that she might find favor. And then when she notices it, she says, I found favor. And then as, as she's blessed, 
I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So then as I went through all this, I'm like, so there's all these things that Boaz did. What do I take from it, God? What's the application? Guys, go back to that phrase, worthy man. You go back to that phrase, worthy man, and we connect it because in the, in the definition of that phrase, part of that definition is pointing us to the Messiah. When you put the word L in front of what the Hebrew word is there, and I would say it, but I wouldn't, I'm not going to say it because I would butcher it. But when you put the word L, just E-L in front of it, the word L is God. And so when you get to that place, it says worthy man. It's like you're saying, if I put L in front, it's like mighty God. Guys, if you've never read the story of Ruth, the reason it's a story of redemption is because Boaz comes in as the redeemer, as the kinsman redeemer. He's known, I mean, literally, he becomes the kinsman redeemer. And so as I was looking at this list list of what it is that Boaz had done for her, and then looking at what that worthy man phrase meant, that it could be connected to the coming of the Messiah or a, or a characteristic of the Messiah who is Jesus. What if all of a sudden we put Jesus' name instead of Boaz's into that, into that place? And then we apply it. That what if I was to remind you that Jesus, Jesus notices you? He no, Boaz noticed Ruth, but he notices you. He sees what's going on. He knows what's going on. He hears every single thing that you say. Every time you cry out, every moment of laughter because of joy, Jesus notices you. You're not just, uh, you're not just a part of the eight and a half billion people on the planet, just this mound of people. He notices you personally. He notices you in the midst of every human being on the planet. You have his attention. When you don't feel like it, it's like, Brian, I don't feel it. It doesn't matter if we feel it. It's what does the Bible say? And when our feelings do not come in line with what the scriptures teach, we always go back to what does the Bible say? Jesus notices you. Jesus speaks to you. Guys, every time I open the word, Jesus is speaking. That's why I'm constantly saying, guys, let's keep our faces in the book, not just so we know the Bible, but we can know the Jesus of the Bible. But Jesus speaks to you. And I believe that God still speaks personally, just never contradicting his written word. But Jesus speaks to you. The third, Jesus protects you. Guys, do you see it? Have you seen it in your life where Jesus has come through and protected you? And do you realize that there are times that you won't notice what it is that Jesus did and I think that one day you will go before him and you'll get to rent your life and you'll get to watch and how he saw and what he did and that traffic jam kept you from dying later. All these things we say, why do I have to go through this? This is such a nuisance. There shouldn't be traffic today on the 210 at 530 going east. (laughs) It's like we just picture all the the things that get in our way. And what if in, in that moment, God's sitting there going, you need to slow down. 
guys, what if, instead of us looking at all these things that interrupt our schedules, what if God's sitting there going, I need to, un- I need to interrupt your schedule so that I could protect you from you? Jesus protects you. Jesus provides for you. And some may jump and go, okay, Brian, he owns everything. He owns everything. And so I'm telling you, Brian, have you seen Powerball? (laughs) I know the Lord's going to provide. And I told him, if you do, I will tithe. (laughs) And I say, I hear that. Guys, here's the thing. He said, he hasn't provided, and maybe in your head, he hasn't provided enough. And I said, and go, seriously? He doesn't need to provide anything. Everything that we have comes from a gracious God who gives perfectly what he wants, when he wants. And there will be seasons where we have plenty and there will be seasons where we have quote unquote want because maybe we have more wants than needs. But there are times where it might get tight and what happens then? Those of us who maybe in a season of plenty, we help those who are in a time of need. We act like a family and we care for one another. Instead of just running through and using every cent that we can do for our own pleasures, we listen to the Old Testament principles. Hey, there's these leftovers that are not for me to go back and get more, but I'm leaving them there for those who have need. But Jesus provides for you. And Jesus knows you. He doesn't just notice you, but he knows you. He knows every, everything you celebrated about last week. And he knows everything you cried over last week. And he knows everything that's coming that you will celebrate and everything that you'll cry over. He knows every single thing that will happen ever. Why? Because he's sovereign and in command and control and he will unfold his plan. Nothing takes God by surprise. So when I say he knows you better than you know yourself, you can believe it because you only know what's happened up to this moment. And for many of us, we can't remember most of what's happened before. But God's going, I know everything that's happened in the past and the moment and the future. And there is nothing that he forgets. So when I tell you he knows you better than you know yourself, friends, hold on to that and let that bring you peace. That even if it's difficult, God knows, and God knows what he's doing. And the last one, Jesus blesses you. Friends, there's blessing in knowing Jesus. And maybe for some, you said, they go, you should have started with that. Like, what do we get? And then we always think for some reason, what we get is Comfortable. Yet we want hope, but not the suffering that produces it. You know what we get? The worship team can come back up. Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. Listen to this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Listen to these. Who forgives all your iniquity. Anyone thankful for that? Like all of it. Even the things you haven't done yet. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven for everything because you belong to him. 
who heals all your diseases. Maybe first time you sit there and go, ah, I have a hard time with that one. Because we prayed and it didn't change. Like I prayed that this would happen and it didn't. And it hasn't gotten better, but it's gotten worse. Friends, can I remind you, as I, as I officiated a funeral on Friday, in Psalm 116, verse 15, it says this, Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. Because ultimate complete healing comes when we leave this earth and we're in the presence of God. So is it true that God heals all our diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? And who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? Guys, like soak in that. We're so used to wanting like this stuff, the tangible things. What if you pulled back and was like, hey, the benefit of knowing God, you're completely forgiven. And God will heal all those things, that, that all those infirmities that you have. And man, his love and his mercy is on you. Like you will experience that and oh, he will satisfy you with good things. Not let you settle for okay, but satisfy you with good things. And who is the greatest good? Jesus. And so Jesus will satisfy you with himself. Guys, this is what the Redeemer does. These are the benefits that come with the Redeemer. And it was all came down to this, and I'll close it. <clears throat> favor. Guys, that word favor is also the word for grace. When you look it up in the Hebrew, it's the word for grace. From cover to cover, it's the story of grace. I don't deserve this. And yet by God's grace, hey, perhaps I'm gonna go out and do this. I'm gonna look for grace and God will provide it. And in that moment, do I sit and go, oh, praise God for your grace. Or do I say about time? Because the second one kind of reveals the heart of entitlement rather than the heart of humility to a God that I don't deserve anything, but oh, he loves to lavish grace on us. And the greatest act of grace, and this is where we're going to close. If you have the communion elements and you're a follower of Jesus, this is the time for us to take communion together. And if you don't have it, it's totally fine. Or you don't feel like taking communion out, it's never a legalistic thing. It's if you want to. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we just ask that you not take communion. We want you to know Christ before you do that. But the greatest act of grace, the greatest act of the Redeemer is Jesus coming for us taking our place, dying and coming back from the dead. And so we ask God first before we take, God, is there anything in my life that is sinful against you? And we, and we trust that the Holy Spirit's going to speak and then we confess it. We agree with God, this is sin. And then we take with grateful hearts. Not guilt, no guilt, followers of Jesus. He doesn't use guilt. Grateful hearts, God, thank you for your favor. Thank you for your grace. So I'm gonna pray as we go into this last song. As you feel led, whenever you're ready to take communion, please do. And then we'll finish up and then we'll close out.
God, we thank you for your grace. Jesus, we thank you. What an incredible story. Looking at Boaz as this Messiah figure, this Jesus figure, not that you came before. This is just a figure pointing us to Jesus and what it is that you do. God, thank you. We don't deserve it, but you have been so good to us. Ultimately, your goodness is seen in your cross. We thank you for taking our place. We thank you for giving up your life, and we thank you that you took it up again and you resurrected. We thank you that you're coming back one day. And oh, how we look forward to that day. But in this moment, Jesus, we thank you that you took a cross on our behalf. And we remember you in this time. God, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you guys more than you know.